insight, innovation, transformation. Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Welcome. I'm Charles Pelton, your host for this podcast on the evolution of clinical interoperability. Our guest today is Genevieve Morris, Senior Director, Clinical Interoperability Strategy at Change Healthcare. Genevieve, hello. Tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do at Change Healthcare. Yeah, thanks uh, for the intro, Charles. So I, as you mentioned, serves as the, serve as the Senior Director of Clinical Interop Strategy, which uh, is in the name what I do. I help set the strategy for our clinical networks team um, and build out our product roadmaps and figure out where we're going so that we can meet the needs of the industry, where we're headed towards. Um, from a background perspective, prior to uh, coming to change a few months ago, I was an independent consultant, uh, helping folks with policy and information blocking and things like that. Um, and before that, I served as the principal deputy national coordinator at ONC, um, as well as the chief health information officer at the VA working on the Cerner implementation. So I'm a policy wonk by trade who also dabbles in technical stuff. Uh, if you want me to code something, we're in trouble, but I can uh, definitely talk about our standard stack that we use within the industry. All, all but the coding. Well, it's interesting you mentioned uh, your background because when it comes to clinical interoperability, the news here really is uh, concerns ONC and, C, the, and the CMS mandates. So why should listeners care about these mandates? Yeah, so we're really headed as an industry towards a massive paradigm shift within interoperability. You know, we've, uh, those of us that have been in the industry for a while have worked on this for most of our careers, at least I have. Um, and, you know, for years we saw really slow progress. You know, things were moving, data was getting exchanged, but it wasn't fast and it wasn't broad and it wasn't nationwide. And at the end of the day, you know, patients have just been left sort of out in the cold in many scenarios where their, their data isn't exchanged. Um, and because it was so hard to get that exchange going, despite grants and, and different programs uh, with meaningful use, you know, Congress decided that it was time to do something to make sure that every patient has access to their own data, as well as making sure that every provider a patient sees has access to the data they need to treat the patient, and that other folks within the, in the industry, like payers, have the data they need to process claims, you know, do their HEDIS measures, all those kinds of things. So Congress put into place the Cures Act many moons ago, it feels like now, because uh, regulation takes a while to develop. Um, and they outlawed information blocking, which is really at the end of the day, you know, information blocking is a really broad definition of anything you do to prevent the exchange of clinical data or electronic health information is the actual term. And once oh, uh, Congress took that step to outlaw information blocking, they gave uh, ONC and CMS a number of mandates to then sort of create the structure around, well, how do you enforce that, right? It's really easy for Congress to say, this is now illegal and there are penalties. But we all understand that there are times where it's, it's the right decision to not share data, right? So sometimes because of security or privacy, or you know, someone really just shouldn't have access to it, it's, you shouldn't share it. Um, but most of the time, we want to share data. And so the paradigm shift that's really occurring right now is a uh, change from permitted purposes. So I'm allowed to share data for treatment, payment, operations, uh, third-party access, to I'm now required to share that data. So it's sort of flipping that switch, the default being now data sharing is turned on. So that's our default. 
instead of being turned off and like sometimes I'll share if I want to. And that's a really big mindset shift for the industry, both from a data release to patients perspective, where a lot of providers just are not accustomed to patients having very quick, easy access to their data, and a mindset shift around, you know, you might not have wanted to share that data with your competitor down the street before, but now you kind of have to, um, because it's the right thing to do for patients. And so interoperability, I think is really, uh, it's in overdrive now because of those regulations and because you know Congress and ONC and CMS have really pushed the envelope to shut down a lot of the excuses people have made over the years to not share data. And at the same time, they've been investing in developing the standards that make that data sharing from a technical perspective easier. So for like the first time in probably since my whole career, we have technical standards that work and we have a policy paradigm that enables data sharing. And Genevieve, what what had been standing in the way in more of a business sense? Because uh, you're describing the the regulatory reasons, but what had been standing in the way? And is it you know to what extent is the real time exchange of information an important consideration here versus more batch exchange of information? Yes. So I'm biased because I'm a policy person. So I will say that first and foremost. However, the technical issues are never the bigger issues and hurdles to overcome in interoperability. There are definitively issues there, right? We have problems with patient matching, we're lacking provider directories, we need set standards where everyone sort of talks the same language, but that's easier stuff to fix. The policy and business issues have been the hard issues to address, and there's a a couple reasons for that. One is just, you know, healthcare providers, uh, payers, uh, health IT vendors have seen the clinical data as their you know, main competitive advantage in this industry. So rather than looking at the services you can build on top of data and the things that you could do with data, like really cool algorithms, you know, risk scoring, all that kind of stuff, they've looked at the data itself as the competitive advantage, right? So I don't want to make it easy for a patient to get access to their own data because then they might take that data with them and go to a different healthcare system or a different provider. And now I've lost that business. And so that's been a a really big hang up um, around data sharing. And then certainly between payers and providers, there's that just historical little, you know, bit of lack of trust between them around what they're going to use the data for. Um, And am I comfortable with having, with them having all of this data? You know, those are just, cultural issues because of how our healthcare system is designed that have been really hard to overcome. And so that regulatory push was really necessary to start moving people towards, I want my competitive advantage to be the services on top of the data, not the data itself. And that was really a lot of what we were trying to accomplish with the information blocking regulations. Whether it happens or not, you know, once you put uh, regulations into the wild, you never quite know, but we'll see. Um, And then on the real-time versus batch, you know, I'll be upfront about this. There are are many times where you need real-time data, particularly for treatment of the patient, right? We've all been in that scenario where you're sitting in front of your physician and they don't have access to lab results that a different physician ordered for you, but you need those lab results to treat the patient. And so you do tests again, right? So for certainly for treatment and safety purposes, there's a need for real-time data, But I do think there's a lot of times where batch data is perfectly acceptable for the use case that you're trying to um, accomplish. And so I think people really need to think carefully about when do I need real time? When do I need batch? 
when do I need one record at a time? When do I need all the records um, for a, pa a panel roster? I think we have to get really careful about how we think about that because there are technology implications to which one of those you do. You know, if you try to do every transaction in real time, the amount of server power that you need to do that for the entire nation, <laughs> um, like billions of transactions per day with large amounts of clinical data, it's just huge and massive and, and not really reasonable. And so I think both are really important and it's just based on which use case you're doing, which one you want or need. Genevieve, when um, you introduced yourself, you kind of, you talked a, a lot about your own involvement in um, in building some of these um, tools. Really, um, could you tell us a little bit more about your involvement with the CMS uh, regulations? Well, more so the ONC. I did provide some feedback to the CMS while I was serving because agencies help each other that way, and we get feedback opportunities. Um, but, you know, I. I was very privileged to be able to serve with great folks at ONC who are incredibly thoughtful about policy um, and with Don Rucker to be able to work through the information blocking regulations as well as the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, which is um, the TEFCA for short, which helps help information networks connect to each other. Um, and I got to work with the team there to really um, put together and uh, put into regulation, at least for the proposed, um, the policy direction that we wanted to go, right? So whenever you're doing regulation development, you have to start first with, well, what is the policy direction that I want to accomplish, right? Am I trying to fix a problem in the industry? Am I trying to make folks do new things? What do I want to get to? Um, and then, and as an appointee, that's our job, right? Is what is the policy we want to accomplish based on the legislation and the administration we work for? And then we work really closely with the staff at ONC for them to take the policy and turn it into the regulatory language of, okay, I want everyone to exchange data. Great policy. Um, but like, what does that mean and how do you accomplish it? Um, and so it's a really collaborative effort between appointees and the career staff at ONC to put those two components together. And so I was uh, able to be there during the proposed rule. So when we were putting together the first draft of it, and help develop out a number of the policies um, that made it into the final, which is always nice because there's a whole process that you go through for that. Um, but really be able to push through things that I think are important for the industry, um, like the US core data for interoperability and making sure that we expand the standardized data, right? Um, making sure that as we think about information blocking, you know, we're trying to think through all of the implications for that. Um, you know, policy and regulation is great. But there are always real world implications when you try to implement them. And you have to try to think really carefully through, okay, if we say X, what will the EHR vendors do? Like, how will they interpret that? How might they try to shortcut something to make it easier? Um, and what will the implications be? Um, and, you know, it's a really great team at ONC who's done so much work on that um, to put together what is a massively large regulation. And then with CMS, um, like I said, we provide feedback to them. And so, you know, the proposed rule that they put together on the interoperability had a chance to work with the folks there and give them some feedback on the APIs um, and, you know, what they're requiring the payers to do. So, so it's a, I would say it's a great opportunity to serve if anyone ever wants to. It's um, it's it's fantastic work that's important. So maybe we'll have some people uh, in our listening audience um, jumping at the opportunity if they get it. Um, you, so um, permitted data sharing is 
required, and it starts with um, the uh, U.S. Uh, core data for interoperability. What what comes after that? Yeah, so I think the for one, the U.S. core data is going to keep expanding, right? So right now they're looking at draft two, and the whole idea with the U.S. CDI is that over time they'll keep adding data elements to it, so that we eventually get to all electronic health information, because that's the legislative mandate: is all electronic health information needs to be shared. So when you look at info blocking, the first 18 months of info blocking is just the U.S. core data. And then they have to do all EHI, which has a specific definition after that. And it, it includes, you know, social determinants of health data, genomic data, you know, like all the other clinical data about a patient that gets collected um, with when you have a, a provider visit. Um, all of that data needs to get standardized so that we can easily exchange it and interpret it all the same. So a perfect example, right now, genetic data um, is not standardized across healthcare systems, right? So when one healthcare system captures it, they map it a certain way to a certain set of codes, but it's totally different than how a different healthcare system maps it. And so over time, as the USCDI grows, we need to add more standard data to it so that we're all speaking the same language. And when data gets exchanged, there's not confusion over you know, what did you mean when you said this? Um, and that's for the nerds in the group, semantic and syntactic standardization. Um, I don't know how to do it, but I know what it is. Um, that's incredibly important. And I think the USCDI will grow over the next five to 10 years till we get to really broad swaths of data. I think the other piece that's going to change, and this is what I'm hoping we'll see is, you know, right now, I think a good portion of folks feel very nervous about this much broader data exchange. And like, there's very little trust within the industry between the various sectors around, well, what, what are you going to do with the data, right? I mean, we're seeing this a lot within the patient space in particular, because they're not HIPAA regulated you know, folks are deeply concerned about what those patient apps are going to do. They're concerned about what payers are going to do when they get this clinical data. And I think over the next few years, I'm hopeful that what we're going to see is just that building of trust between people that you know, we all have different jobs and functions within our healthcare industry. Um, but at the end of the day, it should all revolve around better quality care for patients and lower cost of care as a country, since we have such a high cost of care. And if we can all agree, I think, to like, that's what we're trying to accomplish, then I think folks can start to build the trust to say, all right, I won't hold my data so tightly. Um, I'll be more comfortable with you getting larger access to it because I know that we're working towards that same common goal. And we see that a lot in the value-based payment models, like the ACOs and the PCMH programs, where they've agreed that's their common goal. And so they have no issue with sharing large amounts of data. So I think what comes next is really working towards that comfort level and frankly building in some of the missing components to our structure that allow for that trust right so like a common um a common agreement around identity management so that i know it is charles accessing charles's data it's not genevieve trying to access charles's data right i think we i think we're going to work over the next few years to develop those kinds of common frameworks so that as the regulatory framework has shifted to say, this is what you have to do, people will you know, naturally sort of shift their trust and the culture will start to change around that data sharing. Um, I think you know, the regulatory part is a push, 
but then people have to get comfortable with it and do something. Yeah, and I love this this discussion of the comfort, which is, as you point out, is a discussion of trust and building further trust. There's another component, kind of another leg in a three-legged stool, and that's uh, business benefits and business rationale. And um, and I'm wondering if we can explore the takeaway for the provider, and then pivot to the takeaway for the payer, and then the takeaway really for the member. Yeah, so from a provider perspective, as you think about new ways to electronically share information, um, it should, (laughs) and it's gonna take a little while, so that's why I say should, because it won't be immediate, but it should cut down on the administrative burden for them, right? So like right now, if if you need a prior authorization, right? So I'm I'm literally going through this with the doctor right now where I'm gonna need a prior authorization for a medication. There's so much work my doctor and their staff has to do to submit the prior authorization, to then submit the clinical data for it after they find out what they need. And just, I mean, it just takes hours out of their week. That really isn't patient care. It's just the administrative work that has to be done. And the more comfortable providers get with allowing access by payers in particular, but you know, third-party apps, patient apps, things like that to their clinical data, I think the easier that administrative burden is, is going to become, right? Like they won't have to spend hours, right? So if you implement the fire specifications um, and make your clinical data available, you won't have to spend hours of your time searching down the data for payers to get prior offs approved, right? They'll be able to ping your system and pull that data. Um, and so I think there's a real opportunity to reduce administrative burden for providers um, if they can, you know, understand that there is a level of trust they have to have for that to happen. Same is true on the patient access, right? So there are definitely bad actors out there on the patient app side. But there are really good actors, too, who are trying to improve the lives of patients. And by giving them access to clinical data, like you could be helping your patients with smoking cessation with weight management, with migraine management, right? Like all those things that just make your patient's life better, if they have access to clinical data, is going to improve that for them. And then, you know, maybe they don't need to come and see you all the time because they're managing their conditions better. Um, So I think like that's really the value proposition for providers is reduced administrative work. Like instead of answering secure messages from your patients, if you give them the data, then you don't have to answer them five times to tell them that their lab result isn't ready yet. Right. And and from the payer and third party side. Yep. So from a payer perspective, you know, they need access to clinical data in order to do fetus measures risk management, to do care management, right? So many payers now are doing case management and care management of their high-risk patients. And the the better, the more clinical data they have access to that they should have access to, um, the better they can really perform those services without having to have all the FTEs to you know, track down the charts for the HEDIS measures. You know, they're giving their nurses the ability to access clinical data yeah, so I'll give like real world example. Uh, my my dad ended up with COVID and was in the hospital um, and his payer, uh, his insurance company, like, you know, was notified his Medicare Advantage was notified that he was in the hospital and was discharged. But they weren't given any of the clinical data. So they were reaching out to him about issues that he didn't have because it wasn't relevant to his clinical visit. Right. So they were pinging him saying you were in the hospital. You like what's going on? rather than pinging him to say, hey, 
we saw in your medical chart that like your diabetes had an issue while you were while you were admitted. What can we do to help make that better now that you're discharged, right? So that kind of data sharing for them allows them to do significantly better care management and care coordination for their members, um, as well as sort of the added benefits of like, I can easier, more easily process prior ops. I don't need a whole call center for that. I don't need a whole call center um, or a group of people to do chart chasing for my HEDIS measures. So it really cuts down on the burden for them. Um, and then from a third party perspective, what I would love to see happen um, is folks developing really cool tools that use the clinical data in ways that help patients make better decisions about their care, right? So whether that's from a cost perspective, like tools that can send me to providers that not only have lower cost within my particular network, but also have really high quality of care, um, or who perhaps specialize in my clinical conditions, right? So think about an app that knows my clinical history, who could then find providers for me who are in my network, a good cost of care, high quality care, and who like specialize in like my thyroid condition or my migraine condition, rather than me having to go and Google and hope that I find someone who's good, right? There's just so much potential um, with that data when people use it in good ways. And, and I, I have to say that because there are certainly people out there who are going to try to use that data to advertise to patients in ways that are not great. And so I think we need tight controls over that data and who gets access to it. But we also like need to understand that there are so many services and cool things that we could do that would make patients' lives better if we are just willing to like loosen the purse strings a little bit on that data and share it. You, uh, in, in, in this way, you're really making the case for the takeaway for the member, for the patient themselves. So, uh, and uh, you're, I heard you say your father was discharged, so he's doing okay? He is, yeah. So both of my parents made it through COVID, <laughs> which, is, which is good because of their age and his conditions. Um, yeah, they're doing good. And we were very thankful for the care that they got there. And I was actually fascinated to see that their Medicare Advantage plan not only called and followed up with them, but also like sent them meals. I was like, oh, I didn't know that that happened now, but like, cool, because they're too sick to cook. So, so there's, I mean, there's just, like I said, a lot of things that we could do. And, and my personal opinion is that it should all be focused on the patient and putting them at the center of their care. Like what is interoperability for, if not for that? And the added benefit when you put the patient at that center is we get better quality care, improved outcomes and lower cost of care at the end of the day. Because if you're helping me manage my condition so I don't have to go to a hospital or a doctor, that's just a lower cost of care for everyone within the industry, right? So I think there's just a lot of potential there when we have interoperability, but I'll be honest, if we don't have interoperability, there's very little we can do on any of those issues. You're listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're enabling a better, more efficient healthcare system. Whether you need to improve operational efficiency, optimize financial performance, or enhance the consumer experience, we offer the industry insight and innovative technology to help you meet your objectives. Learn more at changehealthcare.com. Yeah, let's um, stitch it all together. And, and that's um, really the role of the healthcare information exchange uh, in, in kind of making this all happen. Can you tease that out a little bit for us? Yeah, certainly. So I skimmed over the tech stuff, um, but we can't, right? So in order to make interoperability a reality, um, Fire APIs are great, right? FHIR, Fire APIs certainly make 
the connectivity piece, um, like the transport standard, as well as some of the data format, much easier. But they don't solve, nor are they intended to solve for things like, did I find the right patient record? Is, is it Genevieve Morris who lives in Maryland, or is it Genevieve Morris, the Australian actress, <laughs> um, who has the same name, but totally different? Um, there, so things like patient matching, um, being able to link patients up and attribute them to the correct provider. Um, again, FIRE is not built for that. That's not what it does, right? You need to be able to do that attribution. You need to be able to find the data, right? So it's, it's great to know that, so I would say this, if you happen to have patients who know all of their doctor's names, fantastic. You can go directly and, and get that data from that provider. Uh, if you're a patient like me who does not remember names very well and sees multiple doctors, I can't tell you all of their names, right? I can't tell you where to go and find my data. And so things like record location services with patient matching that allow you to make sure it's Genevieve. Um, you know which provider she sees, and so you know where the data is at, and then go get that data and return it back in. You know, that's really where network capabilities come into play, right? So as you think about scalability nationwide, um, it's really hard to connect to thousands upon thousands of fire APIs, especially if you then don't know which ones you should go to to find the data, right? So let's say a payer in this scenario um, you know, they have a network of thousands of providers, each with their own Fire API. So the payer can connect to every single one of those Fire APIs. It will take quite a while, um, but they can do that. But then how do they know where to go and get the data from, right? Like, how do they know which of those Fire APIs to hit when they're looking for data for care coordination purposes, right? And so a network structure can really provide a lot of that other underpinning infrastructure that we just tend to like gloss over <laughs> um, and forget that we need, but is vitally important. Um, and also creates scalability because instead of connecting to thousands of points for a fire, I can just connect to one network location mm -hmm. and that network can facilitate all the other connections and return the data back into me. Um, and anyone who knows me in the industry is not surprised at my viewpoint on this. Um, I've worked with health information exchanges for years. The trusted exchange framework and common agreement, the goal of that was to connect together large health information networks so that not only do I connect to one place to get to my health information network, but they're connected to all the other ones. So I really, I don't have to connect to 200 different health information exchanges. I can connect to one and that gets me to everywhere. But it really does require that infrastructure to be able to find the patient, find the data, um, and return it back to the requester. Um, and that's not trivial. <laughs> um, yeah. We pretend yeah. it is, but it's really not. And not at all. The, um, the, the, the one-to-many is not at all trivial. Um, layer in uh, Change Healthcare here and what yeah. Change Healthcare does. Yep, so Change Healthcare, we do a couple of different things. Um, so I think the thing within interoperability people know us most for is certainly as the service provider to Commonwealth. So Commonwealth is one of the two national networks out there, Care Quality is the other one. Um, and we've been the service provider um, providing the underlying infrastructure and technology like the matching and the record location services for them for quite a while now. Um, I, I can't, I'm trying to think of how many years it's been and I. Yeah, it's been more than five, I think. Um, so we provide that infrastructure for them. And um, because of our experience with providing that infrastructure for them, we also then are able to provide other services like our clinical document collector service um, that 
which is specifically for payment and operations purposes, where folks who need data for those purposes can connect to our single API, and we use our master patient index and matching technology and our record location services to go out and find that data and return it back to them. So we give them a single connection point um, to get to a lot of connection points um, across the nation. And I, I really think like that's how you get to scalability is, is you do that you do that one to many, but you you think about how you do it. Um, the illustration I tend to give is it's a lot like the telecom industry within the US, right? We we have a couple of large major telecom networks and then a couple smaller ones, but we don't we don't have 200. <laughs> um, we've got like three or four. Um, and and I don't have to have a plan with Verizon and Sprint and T-Mobile, although I think Sprint and T-Mobile are the same now. I just have Verizon and I came to everyone. Um, and that's really change healthcare, some of the services that we're trying to provide um, within our tech stack of if, if you work with us, we'll get you to these other networks and to all these other points of care that are holding the clinical data. Um, and I think it's I think it's a strong value proposition for folks. Um, it certainly decreases the technical burden as well as some of the policy burden um, because we do all the work on the data rights, which is some of the hard part of this. Um, info blocking is changing things, but not that fast. And so it's still a lot of work to deal with those policy issues. Genevieve, last question from uh, my side here. Um, and you spoke a little earlier about the uh, expansion of uh, UC, uh, USCDI. Um, what else do you predict or anticipate when it comes to healthcare interoperability as you look out three years, five years, even further out? What what will be the future of healthcare interoperability? Yeah, so I think a couple of things are gonna happen in the near term that will hopefully get us to some of that long-term vision. Um, I, think, I think over the next two years, we're gonna come to a reckoning on patient access. Um, it's fantastic that we are open to patient access. I'm someone who accesses my own data all the time, but we haven't dealt with identity management um, within the U.S. Um, and so nor have we dealt from a federal perspective with a privacy framework that really gives patients more control over their data once it's outside of HIPAA, right? So I think over the next two years, what I hope happens is that some of the underlying infrastructure necessary to really get to nationwide interoperability, which is where I think we're, we're going to be in three to four years, um, I am very hopeful that we spend the time over the next two years dealing with some of those underpinning infrastructure items, like getting our matching good, getting our identity ducks in a row so that we know it's Genevieve and, and we know it's her data. Um, dealing with, like I said, the privacy framework issues so that physicians don't have to be worried about sharing that data to a third party app because they have rules they have to follow. I think if we spend the next, uh, oh, sorry, consent would be the other one I would throw in there that we've not dealt with, um, making sure that I've given my consent and if I have kids that like their consent is correct and I only access the data I'm allowed to. I think if we spend the next couple of years dealing with that while simultaneously getting to standardization within the Fire V4 structure and getting our networks to connect together, um, my hope is that in the next three to four years, we're we're going to be at nationwide interoperability where the majority, 80 to 90 percent of hospitals and ambulatory and long-term care are able to actually access and exchange data through a single connection point 
um, not just with each other for treatment purposes, um, not just with the patient for their own access, but also with payers, with third-party vendors that they want to work with um, to do services for them. And that ultimately, um, we'll get to some of those really cool services, right? I, you know, it's, it's disheartening over the last few years to have um, folks come up with really innovative things to do with data and then suffer from having no data, right? They have a super cool idea and something that they could do um, that would be helpful to the industry, but then they try to do it and they can't get the data and so they just get stuck. And so I'm hopeful in two to three years, I guess three to four, that because we've done sort of that underpinning and gotten to that nationwide exchange, that we will start to see apps and services that, that do things like help me find the right care for my particular clinical issue, not just like abroad, like go to a neurologist. No, like here's a neurologist who knows about migraines because we see that that's what you have an issue with, right? Um, I think those are services that would help patients. I think as we look at things like risk scoring, um, and stratification, you know, being able to do a better job of that because we have larger access to data in appropriate ways. Um, again, it's just going to help patients. Like we don't, you know, I, I've, I've given this illustration a bunch, like we, um, once we turn on the spigot for data flow, then we have to deal with the second level of not all data is equal. And if we treat all data as equal, physicians will just be overwhelmed, right? So notifications are a great example of this. Notifications are fantastic when a patient is discharged from the hospital, but they're not fantastic if you're getting notifications for every single thing, for every single patient that's in your roster, right? I'm a healthy individual. I had a fall a couple Thanksgivings ago where I hurt my shoulder and went to get an x-ray, totally fine. Like my physician didn't really need a notification that I was discharged from the hospital because my shoulder was totally fine. It was bruised. There was no follow-up needed, right? She still got a notification. Um, I think as we move into the three, four-year timeframe, what I am very hopeful we'll see is, is people starting to like layer on smartness and I don't know another word, intelligence. Uh, it was probably the better word to, to the data itself. So that we're not just deluging people with the data, which is the first step that we have to do, but we're being smart about how we use that data and serve it up to people in ways that really do improve care rather than just someone having to read through thousands of pages of clinical data. So I, I'm hopeful that that's three to four years out. I've been wrong before and things take longer than I think they should, but if we can get the spigots all turned on in the next two years and deal with those underlying infrastructure issues, and I think three to four is pretty reasonable for dealing with, you know, adding intelligence to the data, which is where I, I'm hopeful we're headed. You know, that layering of data that you're talking about, what's important, what's less important. I wonder if the application of uh, AI, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning is really going to help that. I, I think we're really hopeful about that. I think so far what we've seen in the industry is the folks who've tried to do AI like suffered from lack of data, right? Like you, you can't build a good AI unless you have a ton of data to feed it. And they just haven't had that access yet. But I totally agree with you. I think we won't realize the promise of AI until the spigot is turned on. Um, but AI definitely will help with sort of surfacing up that really important data that that is the necessary stuff for a provider or a patient to see, right? Because that otherwise you're just throwing 
a ton of data at the wall and hoping something sticks, which <laughs> is not a is not a great scenario for our physicians who get like 15 minutes with a patient, right? It's not doesn't work really well. So Genevieve, we've had a a, a great discussion. Is there anything that is on your mind that um, that you'd like to add? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think the the only thing I would reemphasize, and uh, and and this is something I've said for years, is you know it's really easy to get caught up in the shiny new technology. We all do it, um, and I'm super excited about that shiny new technology. Um, but there are just some really core infrastructure things that need to be in place for that shiny new technology to work. Um, and I, I think the only thing I would say is I, I'm really hopeful that the industry will focus on some of those core items in the next couple of years. Because if we just keep kicking the can down the road on things like matching and identity um, and consent, we're going to end up um, sharing an awful lot of data that's not accurate. Um, and frankly, we're going to end up sharing data with people that data shouldn't get shared with. And, and that's, that's a huge risk because this is very valuable data. Right, like there's a huge black market out there for clinical data, so we need to be really conscientious about that. Um, and and I would say coupling that with a national privacy uh, bill <laughs> that actually makes it through Congress and turns into law um, that gives patients a lot more control over what's done with their data, um, I think it's going to be really important to building that trust within the system because I I think patients will lose trust very quickly. Um, once they find out how some of their data is being used. And so so I think, um, you know, the only thing I would say is I'm, I'm very hopeful the industry will work on all of those things. Part of why I'm at Change Healthcare is because I think we are working on a lot of those things. Not the legislation, of course, because that's not our job, but working on that underpinning infrastructure um, that's really necessary to make all of this work. So, you know, hopefully we'll, hopefully over the next few years, we'll make a ton of progress. It, it definitely feels like we're at that kind of turning point with interoperability where we're going to start to make really big leaps forward. Well, uh, it's um, the evolution of uh, clinical interoperability, our, uh, our topic, uh, very much, um, it, you know, if there's one core word here that, that, that I hear, it's the, uh, also the evolution of trust and that makes for the promise of uh, clinical interoperability. And uh, with that, uh, Genevieve Morris, uh, Senior Director, Clinical Interoperability Strategy at Change Healthcare. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. We're focused on accelerating the transformation of the healthcare system through the power of the Change Healthcare platform. We provide data and analytics-driven solutions to improve clinical, financial, administrative, and patient engagement outcomes in the U.S. healthcare system. Learn more at changehealthcare.com.